Well, good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. And happy Epiphany. Epiphany is uh, a season that you've heard about a little this morning where we celebrate uh, Jesus as the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And we think about Christ's mission to the nations. Jesus also called his disciples to him and said, you are the light of the world. So close is my relationship to you that you share my vocation in the world. And so Epiphany is a good time for the church to especially reflect on our mission in the world. Well, it's not only the first Sunday in Epiphany. This is also the beginning of a new series. We're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount today. Jesus' most famous sermon, the most famous sermon that the world has ever known, and his most famous teaching. It gives us Jesus' vision for human flourishing. It is also, in essence, Christianity 101. And so, if you are visiting here today, if you are checking out the claims of Christianity, investigating who Jesus is and what he taught, um, then this is a great Sunday to be here, and this is a great series to enter in on. But this morning, what I want to do is, rather than start at the beginning of the sermon in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, I actually want to give an overview of the sermon by focusing in on what I think are some of the most crucial verses to understanding the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which we've just heard read. But before I do that, let me pray for us. Lord, we just bid you to come and speak because we believe that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God and that you come and all your mysterious saving power through it. And so we ask that you would be present among us and that we would hear not my words, but the words of Jesus. For his words create life out of death, and light out of darkness. And those are the words that we need. So give them to us this morning, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it is some of the most famous teaching that Jesus ha ever uttered. Uh, even if you are not a Christian or didn't grow up in the church, you're probably familiar with elements of the Sermon on the Mount like the golden rule. Everyone loves the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want to see where the golden rule is, just go to my daughter's public school classroom where it hangs on the wall. Uh, see, these are some of the most famous words that Jesus ever uttered. And because of that, it's gained him a high amount of respect and, and praise from those who wouldn't even consider themselves Christians. Thomas Jefferson said that this is the most, when he, he was writing to John Adams, and he said, this is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered. It's because of that that, that Jesus' teaching here has spread so far and wide. The New Testament scholar Hans Dieter Belt said that, um, that the teaching that Jesus offers here transcends the borders of Judaism and Christianity and even Western culture. And if you want an example, like example number one, think of Gandhi. 
So Gandhi was meeting with the viceroy to India, and they were having a meeting together, and they're sitting there, and the viceroy to India asked Gandhi, he says, tell me what you consider to be the solution to the problems of your country and mine. And Gandhi got up, and he shuffles over to this little, uh, this little table, and he grabs a little book off of it. And he shuffles back and he sits down and he opens the little book to Matthew chapter 5. And Gandhi said this, When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only to our own countries, but of all the world. I mean, it's kind of a truism that people would say that Jesus is a great moral teacher. And this, um, this opinion has gone from, from the ancient world to the, the modern one. Uh, just as recent as 2012, Andrew Sullivan wrote an editorial piece in uh, Newsweek. And in it he said that, that the great contribution of Christianity to the world is the moral code of Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, because here we find, here we find Jesus' teaching that is uncorrupted by the dubious theology and the politics of the institutional church. And many agree with this. I mean, even Richard Dawkins, no fan of Christianity, even Richard Dawkins said that Jesus Christ is a great moral teacher. Here's my question for Richard Dawkins and Andrew Sullivan and all the other people who say that. Have you actually read this? Like seriously. Virginia Stins Owens, she taught 25 years ago, she taught freshman English at the University of Texas A&M. And she assigned to them, she was gonna, they were going to read the great works of literature throughout time. And she assigned to them the Sermon on the Mount. And she wanted them to write a response paper to it. And they did. They wrote a response paper. And she thought, okay, this is the Bible Belt, kind of. At least they're going to approach it with some level of like piety and a nod of respect to Jesus and what he says here. Not so much. But listen to some of the responses. Quote, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. That sounds like a freshman, doesn't it? Yes, you write like that. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Or how about this? The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is sin or not. Or then there's this one. The things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. You know, the people who initially heard Jesus' sermon, they actually reacted a lot like those freshmen. Did you hear it? Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Look at how the crowds respond, quote, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. See, what these freshmen knew and what those crowds knew was this is just not benign morals that we can all agree on. That the thing that Jesus is saying here is actually quite radical. 
And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you aren't shocked or offended by the Sermon on the Mount, then I really want to ask you, have you read it? Like, have you really read it? Because the things that Jesus says here are scandalous to ancient and to modern ears. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at three things that I think are some of the most scandalous things that Jesus teaches. And they are the three things that I think we need to come to grips with if we're going to ever be able to get a handle on this sermon. Okay? So here's the first. If we're ever going to understand what Jesus is saying here, and we're ever going to understand and know how to approach the sermon, then we have to come to grips with the authority that Jesus invokes throughout. Look again at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Why was it that the crowds were so astonished at Jesus? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, here's how the scribes would teach. Whenever you ask a scribe a question, what do you think about this? They would never actually give you their opinion, at least not at first. What they would do is they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so this, but Rabbi other so-and-so said this, and he makes this point, and this is really good. And they would kind of lead you down this kind of long train of the interpretive history of, of how to understand Torah. Not so Jesus. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you, Matthew 5, 21 following, but I say, I'm just going to tell you, See, Jesus is, is speaking here as one who has authority because if you have to realize that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't just drop out of the sky. It comes in the middle of Matthew. And the book of Matthew starts and ends with Jesus proclaiming Jesus as the king. His genealogy goes back to David, the great king. And we end, this, and we end the book with all authority in heaven and earth being given to Jesus. So he sends his disciples out into the nations. And as we lead up to this, what we find is the first words of Jesus is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes about demonstrating the power of that kingdom, like healing blind people and, 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 uh, and healing the sick and casting out demons. And then he begins to teach authoritatively. This is what life in the kingdom is like. Jesus is speaking here as one who has authority. He is not doing, he is not doing what Plato or Aristotle or Socrates did. He's not saying, here's some, here's some very clear, crisp ways to understand the world that we would all come to if we just thought about it long and hard enough. He says things like, happy are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. If you, if you call someone a fool, well, you're worthy of the fires of hell. Who says stuff like that? Like, that's not just something that, like, we just say, oh, yeah, of course, that's, uh, that's all apparent to all of us. Socrates never said that. Plato never said that. Buddha never said that. But Jesus, he says that. Jesus is not giving us some things, and he's not saying like, well, here's some things in life as I've gone through this world that I've found helpful. Uh, take them or leave them. They actually come as a package deal. 
That's one of the things about the golden rule. You know, it's memorability and it's triteness. One of the things about the memorability and the triteness of the golden rule is that it betrays the fact that Jesus is teaching something actually quite radical. That there's a universal ethic that's behold, that all people, all places are beholden to. Are we sure we think he's a great moral teacher? Have you read this? See, we don't get to pick and choose from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not offering us a thousand or a hundred decisions to make. Do I like this or do I like that? I think I like his teaching on um, money, but I don't like his teaching on sex. I like his teaching on uh, the poor, but I don't like his teaching on um, marriage. Jesus is not offering us like a hundred little decisions to make. He's, he's actually putting before us one choice. And here's what it is. Will you let Jesus upend your conception of the good life? Does Jesus know better than you what makes for human flourishing? For your flourishing? Does Jesus know more than us what the blessed life entails? Will you submit, will I submit to his authority? Well, why should we? Look at chapter 5, verse 17. It's a very famous verse. Lots of ink has been spilled on this verse. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, everyone gets hung up on this whole idea of abolishing the law and the prophets and fulfilling them. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think we actually miss the most scandalous bit of that statement. I did. I wonder if you did. I did for years. You know a scandalous bit of that statement? I have come. From where? Bethlehem? Nazareth? I have come. What, 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 where? John 16, 28. I have come from the Father and have come into the world. See, Jesus, Jesus is not just claiming to know how humans work and human flourishing works better than anyone else. He's claiming to know how humans work and how human flourishing works better than anyone else because he created them. Because he is God of God and light of light, very God of very God, because all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. I was... Uh, I was talking to a friend once. I was, in, I was in Dallas, Texas. And I have a friend that lives in Dallas, Texas. He grew up there. Uh, he, he's an older friend. We're friends, but he's, he's, he's a good bit older than me. He's advanced in his career. And, um, and uh, I stay in his house when I go to Dallas on these kind of uh, research leaves. So I study in the SMU library, and I borrow his bike. And it's usually either I go, I don't know why I choose to do this, but I either go in the middle of the winter or in the middle of the summer, which are the worst times to be in Dallas. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that there is a good time to be in Dallas, but don't tell any of those folks that. 
So like, you know, I come back and, and, and I drive through these neighborhoods and they're very beautiful. It's like the most beautiful part of Dallas. But, uh, you know, and I, I look at the architecture and I look at the houses and one time I was talking to him and I'm describing this house and I was like, you know, it's on the corner here. I don't know the street names, but it looks like this and, and it's got those plantation shutters and it has this beautiful door like this. And do you know the house that I'm talking about? And, uh, and my friend looks at me, he goes, know it? I built it. Because he happens to be actually one of the, uh, uh, in the home construction business and, and built most of the homes in the Park City's area, or a large majority of them. And um, I feel like, you know, you're talking to Jesus and you're like, do you, know, do you know about this human life? Do you know about human flourishing? Do you know how humans are supposed to function and work in human society? Know it. I created it. Of course I know how it's supposed to work. Let me ask you something this morning. Let me ask you a question. Are you tired? Are you tired of pursuing life on your own terms? The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to another way. A different life. A better life. But it's not an easier life. Which brings us to the second scandalous thing that we have to come to terms with. We have to not only come to terms with the authority that Jesus invokes in the sermon, we also have to come to terms with the standard that Jesus sets. You know, there's a really popular notion out there, and it, and it goes like this. Uh, in the Old Testament, what we have is a really strict and demanding code of ethics and a judgmental God who is kind of burdensome. And what Jesus comes to do is to kind of upend all that uh, with grace and love and to kind of show that, that the Old Testament God is really not um, the God that we need to, the conception of God in the Old Testament is really not the one that we need to adopt. In fact, God is a lot more lenient than that. Um, he grades on a curve, right? But look at, look at Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And with these words, Jesus undermines a common misunderstanding that has existed from his day until ours. That somehow Jesus is against the Old Testament. The most recent iteration of this, or one of them, is um, a popular pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley. I usually don't talk about other pastors, but this is kind of a big one. So he wrote this book called Unhitched. And his, his thesis in the book is that, that Christians, the problem with Christianity today is that we have hitched our wagon too much to the Old Testament and Old Testament concepts of God and his law and his covenant and, and relationship and things like that. And so he, he pleads with pastors, quote, to consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant. Man, And there's something about it that seems kind of plausible. Until you read not an iota, not a dot, will pass away until all is accomplished. 
when Jesus talks about an iota or a dot, he's talking about the squiggly lines probably in like the Hebrew alphabet. He, he's saying not a period, not a, not a punctuation point. None of it. Um, th there's, a, there's a New Testament scholar who's known for doing book reviews, and in his book reviews, at the end of the book review, he gives a list of all the typos in the book. Right? So he just goes through and he lists all the typos that you'll find in the book, right? You know, if, if Jesus was to submit a, a, New York Time, a New York review of books, if he was to submit a New York review of books on the Old Testament, uh, what would it read like? It would read like this. Not even a punctuation mark should be changed. See, be careful about any teaching which sets Jesus up against the Old Testament. Be careful about any teaching that sets Jesus up against the Old Testament. This is his book report. You know, we call it the Old Testament. In scholarly circles, we call it the Hebrew Bible. And we do that sometimes to... to to respect uh, the, our Jewish colleagues who we work with in a non-supersessionist kind of way. But I actually think that there's something that's more helpful than that. It's to remember that, like, the Old Testament isn't old and gone. It's Jesus' Bible. And it's ours, too. I have not come to abolish my Bible, Jesus says but to fulfill it. This word fulfill, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's an interesting way to put it. It's a, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on this. Well, what does it mean to fulfill something? Well, some people say what it means to fulfill is it means to, to bring to an end. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? I've not come to abolish, to end the law. I've come to end the law. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. So other people say, well, it just means to keep. But Jesus is doing more than just keeping the law or maintaining it or upholding it. Now, see, I think that what this word fulfill means is, is when you, the word fulfill is used in the New Testament, what it means is it's to, to when you fulfill something, it's to bring that thing into its full and final expression. It's mature expression. And so um, for those who are acquainted with technical theological terms, it, to fulfill something is to bring that thing to its eschatological realization. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to bring the law to its mature and final stage. So when he says in verse 21 following, you have heard it said to those of old, but I said you, he is not undermining the law. He's not undermining or abolishing or doing away with the murder command, the commandment against taking a human life or anything like that. He's saying, this is how the law comes to expression in my full and final eschatological kingdom. This is what it looks like. But I want you to know something. He is not relaxing the standard. See, it's a very popular idea to think that, that Jesus comes to, in essence, tell us that God's going to treat us like my calculus professor when I was a freshman. 
So when I was a freshman, I was in this massive, I was at Auburn University and I was in this massive uh, calculus class. It's the only math class that I had to take in college, which is a good thing because that's why I got out of college. I just had to take this one class. And so I went and we only like, so I go in and this guy, uh, he had been around a while. He was a tenure professor. I think he'd been teaching at Auburn for something like 87 years. And uh, he would, you know, show up at class about 10 minutes late or something every time. He would go, come in. And we only had two assignments, the whole class, a midterm and a final. And so I take the midterm and I get my grade back and I'm a little concerned because I made a 46. And I'm going, oh no, I'm going to fail this class. What's going to happen? So, you know, I find his office hours. I go like across, you know, I go across the campus, you know, take bike, bus, scooter, into the dungeon halls, into his office. I sit with him, and he's like, yeah, who are you? What's your name? Yeah, I'm like one of the freshmen in your 600-person freshman you know, calculus class. I'm a little concerned about my grade. He said, well, what's your name? I tell him my name. He looks it up. He goes, oh, yes. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. I mean, what do you mean I'm fine? He's like, well, I think you're on, you're on track to make like a name minus or something like that. I'm like, no, I think you got you heard the name wrong. I made a 46 on that exam. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, but that's before the curve. I mean, the highest grade was a 52. <laughs> sure enough, I got my A in calculus. I did not get calculus. <laughs> It, some of us think that that's what Jesus is coming to do, to, to grade like that professor grades, to relax the standard, to say, you know, it really doesn't matter. I mean, over 25%, that's good enough, right? But look at verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. Whoever relaxes this will be called least in the kingdom of God. Which there is grace there. They're still in the kingdom. But Jesus is not relaxing the standards. What does it mean to relax the standards? Well, to, to relax the standards is to, is to bring the standards down to a place where it is externally keepable. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's like this. It's like, here's how you relax the standard of what it means to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. You give exactly 10% of your money away and no more. You read your Bible every day for this long. You don't sleep with another person's spouse. And remember... Um, no chewing, no drinking, no cussing. We're good. We're good. Or are we? That's what it means to relax the standard. See, they did it in Jesus' day. We do it today. And Jesus says, no. And, and unless, unless just, just in case you didn't get the point, there's verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are not the bad guys. No one thought that they were the bad guys. These are the paragons of religious virtue. These are the most disciplined. 
They, 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 they studied the law. They memorized the Torah. They knew it backwards and forward. They not only knew that, they knew all the tradition that surrounded it. And they knew that tradition so that they could keep it. They enacted it. And yet Jesus says, unless, you, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom. I mean, this would be like, um, so yesterday, uh, Jerry Rice was on TV. He's San Francisco 49ers' uh, greatest receiver ever. He is the greatest receiver ever. Let's just go ahead and say that. And, uh, you know, and I'm not biased. I'm just a Niners fan. So they're interviewing Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice was known, actually, more, more than his stats. Jerry Rice was known for his work ethic. And it, the, the, as the stories go, what would happen is, like, Steve Young has a story where uh, he, Steve Young, four days after they won the Super Bowl, went to clean out his locker, and he looks on the field, and Jerry Rice is there, and he's running sprints on the field and then running the stadium, right? It's like four days after, and he has the grounds guy throwing him catches, right? He, had to, he found someone to throw him the ball. Jerry Rice used to t uh, take the rookies out on his, like, off-season workout, and he would go to the canyons and run, and he would leave them in the dust. They would, like, stop halfway through. So imagine this. Imagine that there was a group of college athletes. They play in the NCAA. They're football players, and they have aspirations to play in the NFL. Imagine that the scouts came to them, and they said this. Look, unless your abilities surpass those of Jerry Rice, you will never enter the NFL. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how it would have been heard. Jesus is not relaxing the standards. And that's why, as one person said, the most natural response to the Sermon on the Mount is, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Have mercy on me. Which is what brings us to, I think, the final, the third and final most scandalous thing that we have to come to terms with if we're going to read the sermon aright and approach it aright. And that is the new life that Jesus assumes. See, the common response, there's a very common response to hearing the Sermon on the Mount. And that common response for those who have heard it is this. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for teaching Thank you for teaching me these things uh, and this ethic, and I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get there. But if that's how you respond to the Sermon on the Mount, then those freshmen at Texas A&M are way further than you are. Because they get it. This is absurd. This is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Because the only way to hear the Sermon on the Mount is to be humbled by the Sermon on the Mount. See, there are three ways I think that we can, well, I would say this, that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the greatest scandal, is that we don't have the power to accomplish the Sermon on the Mount. It's its impossibility. See, there are three responses, I think, that people tend to have to the Sermon on the Mount who actually hear it. I mean, the, the three responses, we can either ignore it, which most do, 
we can explain it away. Well, Jesus really didn't mean that. I mean, in that day, in that time, maybe, but not for us, no. Or you can say, God, help me. Which is actually where the sermon starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who realize that they are morally bankrupt and ethically impotent, because that is the place where you begin to enter the sermon. See, this sermon starts, this great sermon on doing, starts by talking about those who cannot do and know they cannot do. It starts with the creative word of God. Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, blessed are those. And then he turns and he says, you are the light of the world. So the blessed are those, or the blessed are you. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. And when he says this, it is a creative word. It's the word that creates life out of death and light out of darkness. See, Jesus starts by saying, you are. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with almost unqualified mercy. It is for nothings and from nothings. See, many of us think that what Jesus is offering us is a better life. And what the Sermon on the Mount is doing is giving us steps to reach that better life. Jesus is not offering you a better life. Jesus did not come to top up your old life. Jesus came to give you a new life. His life. And that's the only life that can enter the kingdom. It, you know, sometimes I feel like we approach the Sermon on the Mount like, when I was a kid, you know the worst thing, one of the worst things in the world, this is hyperbole, in case you didn't get it. One of the worst things in the world, though, in the moment, is to be a kid at an arcade without any money. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you're just at the restaurant, the pizza restaurant, and you're waiting on the pizza, and there's the air hockey table, right? And you got no quarters. But the air hockey table, why do they always leave the air on? The air is going up, it's there, and you're like, what do I do with this? And so what you do is you, you go and you get like a coaster from the table, and you start like trying to slide the coaster, and you're trying to like play with the coaster in your hands on the air hockey table, right? And, and you're like, this isn't working. Well, of course it's not working. You don't have the puck, and, and, you, don't, and, you, don't have the, and you don't have the paddles. In fact, if you don't have the puck or the, the paddles, you aren't even playing the game. Many of us, when we approach the Sermon on the Mount and we try to approach it with an old life, we are missing the necessary ingredients to even play the game. This is actually what makes sense of Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're playing air hockey, but they're playing it without the paddle. And they're playing it without the puck. They're thinking that if they just read the law enough and study the law enough, then, then they can achieve this new life. But the problem, and what Jesus assumes, is that, that while the law shows you the good life, it cannot give you the power to achieve it. And what you need is not an old life topped up. You need a new life. 
And how do we get the new life? Look again at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot or an iota will pass away from this law until all is accomplished. See, Jesus came to accomplish the law. Jesus came not just to teach us the deeper meaning of it. Jesus came to establish it because that's what the law was always meant to do and to be, to be established on this earth. And so Jesus comes and, and, and he, he fills out in greater meaning in its final mature form what the sacrifices were always pointing to. But he also fills out in its final and mature form what the promises were pointed to. The promises about having God's law written on our hearts, so inscribed on our natures that we live out of them. See, this is salvation. Not just that Jesus died for your sins, which is amazing, and he did. But that Jesus gives you his life. And this is not a life that you can achieve. It is a life that you must receive and continually receive by the Spirit, by being cast upon the mercy of God. Because God has done what the law could not do. God has done, Paul says in Romans 8.1, what the law could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that we, by the power of the Spirit, might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So that it might be fulfilled in us. Why did Jesus die? Titus 2.14 That he might purify for himself a holy people, zealous for good works. Or if I could put it another way, Jesus died that you might live the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask you, are you tired of pursuing life? on your own terms. Well, I have really good news for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the new life, for they shall be satisfied. Go to him, cast yourself upon him, and receive his life, now and always. Amen.